Section 12 of the Heroines of History. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Aubrey Kirkham. Heroines of History by John S. Jenkins. Joan of Arc part one monarch of france send thou the tidings over all the realm great tidings of deliverance and of joy the maid is come the missioned maid whose hand shall in the consecrated walls of reims crown thee anointed king southeys joan of arc in this age of intelligence and refinement of the arts of commerce political science and christianity it is difficult to believe that so few years comparatively have elapsed since superstition threw her dark pall over all that is now bright and attractive the period is not very remote when the most trivial events were presumed to be of an unearthly or supernatural character when it was rare indeed that any man however much in advance of his age and knowledge had the boldness to attribute an unforeseen and extraordinary occurrence though susceptible of the fullest explanation to its proper and legitimate cause among the polytheists of greece and rome to doubt the interposition of these numerous divinities in the commonest concerns of life was the worst grade of treason to the state they believed as they were taught by the religion in which they placed their trust and by its priests whom they reverenced that every waterfall had its nymph every grove its dryad that there was a deity to smile upon every folly to encourage every unholy passion or to strengthen every virtuous hope and noble aspiration in the dim religious light of a later era popular credulity clung with less tenacity to the forms and ceremonies than to the substance of superstition astrology was mistaken for astronomy philosophy and magic were synonymous terms palmistry and necromancy were ranked among the sciences the belief in ghosts and witches was general ancient wood and castle were peopled with spirits and hobgoblins bright-eyed elves beset the path of the lonely wayfarer and light-footed fairies danced the livelong night upon the green the french historian speaking of this period says henceforward diablerie had little to learn but was soon erected into a science demonology brought forth witchcraft it was not sufficient to be able to distinguish and classify legions of devils to know their names professions and dispositions it was necessary to learn how to make them subservient to the uses of man hitherto the subject studied had been the means of driving them away from this time the means of making them appear was the end desired witches sorcerers demonologists started up beyond all number each clan in scotland each great family in france and germany almost each individual had one of these tempters who heard all the secret wishes one feared to address to god and the thoughts which shunned the ear they were everywhere their flight of bats almost darkened god's own light and day 
they had been sent to carry off in open day a man who had just received the communion and who was watched by a circle of friends with lighted tapers such was the character of the age made up of credulity and superstition prone to believe and trust in the strange and the marvelous ready to grasp supernatural aid when human efforts failed such was france when at the death of her maniac king charles the sixth a bloody struggle for the crown commenced between the various competitors and their adherents a struggle prolonged from a want of skilful military leaders and the superstitious belief of all parties in omens preceding a conflict which depressed them with cowardly fear or elated them with reckless courage according to the import of the signs chance decided the victory the rival houses of orleans and burgundy were the instigators of the civil war that desolated france enlisting the aid of foreigners who threatened to subjugate the nation to british power charles the dauphin sixth son of the deceased monarch and claimant of the crown strengthened the orleans party by marrying a daughter of count armagnac a gascon nobleman of influence in his rude land warlike fierce and not unfitted to lead a party in those days of open strife on the other hand the young duke of burgundy in revenge for the murder of his father in which charles had participated offered the crown of france to henry v of england already upon their shores with a well-disciplined army in answer to the call of the old duke in accepting the tendered throne he espoused catherine the daughter of charles the sixth but before his young head bore the weight of a double crown he died leaving an infant son henry the sixth with the duke of bedford at paris to rival the claims of the little king of bourges as charles was called in derision by his enemies and indeed this raillery was not amiss for the dauphin surely straitened in his resources being scarcely able to furnish his table he was naturally amiable and weak in character yet adversity lent him courage and prudence that served him in time of need but relaxed into effeminate ease when his foes granted him tranquillity his army was made up of the sturdy scotch retainers of the earl of bouchant soldiers from italy and spain the fierce cruel armagnacs and such of the friends as supported his claims though he placed little dependence on the unskilled troops of his own nation france was thus overrun with a foreign soldiery who made up for their lack of enthusiasm in the cause which they supported by the hearty eagerness with which they pillaged the towns cities and hamlets that fell into their hands there was scarce a river in france but had rolled a crimson tide through its channel or borne the mangled corpse of friend and foe to low quiet valleys terrifying the simple inhabitants and warning them that strife and bloodshed were near neither age nor sex were spared the inhuman butchery scarce an humble cottage but had wrongs to revenge and not a palace or castle had escaped the mournful loss of some of the noblest blood of france as often spent in petty vengeance as on the field of battle the english supported by the burgundian party succeeded in capturing every town north of the seine driving charles and his adherents beyond the loire had the english now unitedly pushed their conquests france would have been completely subjugated their strength was destroyed however by private feuds and jealousies which finally obliged the duke of bedford to return to england leaving charles the seventh in a comparative state of tranquillity orleans was the last stronghold left him 
and in that city and in the surrounding region his remaining followers stationed themselves the king so far from making defensive preparations and accumulating forces in the two years interval of peace spent the time in distant chateaux luxuriating in ease and pleasure utterly regardless of the petty intrigues and struggles for power that daily weakened his party but all these years of turmoil and war and superstition were schooling a daring spirit to uphold the victorious batterers of france not a noble youth learning the tactics of war at the side of a chieftain father not a young tell gathering vigor in the strong mountain air and practicing eye and hand to unerring archery nor a bold genius whose military talent was to place him at the head of the armies of france but a simple gentle peasant girl instigated by imaginary saints and angels jeanne of arc or jeanne d'arc la pousseur d'orleans according to the old chroniclers was born in the department of vosges in northern france in the year fourteen eleven or fourteen twelve her family name is said to have been written dark she was the third daughter of an honest and worthy husbandman bearing the name of jacques d'arc who though a native of montier at the time of her birth dwelt in the pretty little village of domremy which lies in one of the most beautiful valleys of the winding meuse between the towns of neuchefetier and vacoyers and on the borders of lorraine and champagne in this lovely and fruitful region she first saw the light her quiet and pleasant home the rich pasture lands that girt it as with a belt of emeralds the neighboring groves of beech and chestnut where fairy forms were seen to flit and fairy voices whispered the balloon-shaped hills of the vosges which stretched far away to the land of the vine and the olive and the dark forests of oak and fir that crowned their summits shaking and bowing their stately tops in the fragrant breezes from the purple vineyards and the smiling slopes of burgundy these were all the world to her through the quiet and peculiarly meditative years of her childhood the sweet-toned bells in the chapel of our lady of belmont lulled her infant slumbers with their musical chimes and as she grew older her young mind expanded in an atmosphere of legends and myths of saints and fairies that gave a wild and boundless range to a naturally vivid imagination her mother in whom a superstitious piety was strongly implanted kept the little ones quiet while she plied the humming distaff by telling them tales of valiant knights and fair ladies carried off by demons or visited by angels and attended by a troop of fairies all which the young listeners most devoutly believed the young joan never lost a word of the wonderful legends storing them in her memory till her brain became peopled with imaginary beings who accompanied all her lonely rambles whose voices whispered to her in the stirring leaves of the forests whose forms were wreathed in the mists of waterfalls and whose tones were as audible to her sensitive ear in the gushing music of winding streams as they had been in the sweet tones of her mother's voice when united with the dreary hum of the spinning wheel she never danced and sung like the other maidens in the hamlet nor joined in their merry sports but preferred to steal away by herself and tell over beads to kneel in a shaded aisle of the chapel and to breathe her baptismal vows at the sacred shrine or at the hour of vespers devoutly repeat the compline before a favorite picture of the virgin 
but if she did not mingle with gay playmates at the sound of the viol, she could boast of a neat and nimble use of the needle, and could ply the distaff with speed equal to her mother's. Reading and writing were unsolved riddles to her, for these were accomplishments known only to the clergy, to those of gentle birth, or to such as depended on them for a livelihood, and there were many a peerless dame and gallant knight who deemed these performances as unbecoming labor, and kept servants in the household to do such menial offices. It is asserted by some that Joan was a servant in a roadside inn, and tended the horses and the guests in the capacity of an hostler, and that she rode them to the watering-places, thus acquiring great skill in horsemanship. These facts are not well authenticated, however, and they certainly are not in keeping with the gentleness, modesty, and delicacy of her character. It is related by others that she tended her father's flocks and herds while they grazed on the mountain-side, a not improbable occupation, and a very common one in the Valley of the Muse. Here upon the slopes, gorse flower glowing, as the sun illumed their golden glory, she rested the livelong day, watching grazing herds, and, and looking down upon the picturesque valley, bordered with a vast forest, its green meadows, luxuriant vineyards, the river with its wooded banks, and her own loved hamlet in the midst, invoking good spirits to guard it against the ravages of war, nor let the clash and din of weapons echo among the blue hills that shut in the peaceful valley. But the occasional traveller brought tidings of unjust and murderous deeds, and, as Joan's spirit began to break away from the enfoldings of childhood, her lonely day-watches were occupied with burning thoughts of her country's wrongs she longed to pass beyond the hills where she was born and mingle in the mortal strife her pale cheek crimsoned when she heard the story of helpless women falling beneath the battle-axe and children driven forth to suffer the horrors of famine that their cries might intimidate the stout hearts of their fathers and make them yield their strongholds and when at last a troop of fierce soldiers came with victorious shouts along the muse to the very heart of the sacred valley and joan and the humble household had to flee for safety then the martial spirit pervaded her being and was henceforth inseparable from the religious fervour that actuated her in freeing france from her enemies the fugitives returned to the unobtrusive village and found the beloved chapel in ruins this wanton destruction of her favourite and holy resort awakened a new feeling of heroism in joan which with unfixed purpose, only awaited events which should direct her. In the vicinity of Domremy was a large old tree whose immense, thick foliage branches overspread a wide green sward. It had stood through many generations, and legend upon legend hollowed its remembrances. To the young people it was known as the Tree of the Ladies and Beauty of May, and tradition said the fairies used to meet and converse with brave knights, who, in later times, had become so wicked that the sprites refused to appear to any but the good and virtuous. At early dawn the maidens of Domremy traced the footprints of the fairies where they had danced all night beneath the giant tree, and they hung garlands upon the branches, wishing they might get a glimpse of the forms that Joan assured them she had seen, and whose voices whispered mysterious things to her. Nearby was also a fountain, called the Fountain of the Fairies, and here the young girl lingered for hours till she saw the misty waters take shape and beheld the holy features of saint margaret or saint catherine beaming kindly upon her and she heard them in a low soft voice call her the restorer of france and felt them affectionately embracing her 
this she related to her parents and the village maidens but it only excited their derision since none of them were equally fortunate she solemnly chided them for their unbelief for she evidently had faith in these visions the result of a morbid imagination dwelling constantly upon one theme after the intelligence of the marvellous success of the english and the retreat of charles the seventh beyond the loire she had startled the quiet labourers in the valley and become the theme at every cottage door or fireside joan's visions became more vivid and in her daily visits to the fountain she discovered the mission which the angels had devolved upon her saint michael the archangel of battles and of judgments appeared in the midst of a dazzling light saying Jeanne, go to the succour of the king of france and thou shalt restore his kingdom to him saint marguerite and saint catherine will be thy aids a host of angels in white wearing crowns and speaking in soft voices followed the appearance of saint michael and when they had all disappeared the timid girl wept abundantly wishing they had taken her with them several years had passed in this way confirming joan's belief in these messages and commands from god as she denominated them she obeyed the voices which directed her to attend church faithfully and perform all her duties she was known to all the villagers in her pious and charitable acts and her youthful friend Homet assured her companions that joan was a good simple girl and always talked of god and the angels she answered maidenhood pure and beautiful the impress of her unsullied thoughts stamped upon her pale calm face full of childish innocence yes adorning a mind of rare sense and shrewdness both her mother and father reproved her firm belief in the mission that had been given her and with alarm found her already practising military exercises mounted upon a horse and tilting her lance against trees as if in knightly combat her father declared that rather than see his daughter among men-at-arms he would drown her with his own hands hoping to divert her from her wild unwomanly schemes her parents used their authority to secure her marriage a young man declared she had promised him her hand in childhood and to enforce his claims cited her before the ecclesiastical judge of Toul. this they thought would frighten her into acceptance since with her timidity and modesty that suffused her face with blushes at a word from a stranger she could never summon courage to defend herself to her surprise she appeared in court and declared the falsity of the charge a visit from an uncle at length secured an opportunity for her to execute her purpose he was convinced of her divine mission and promised to take her to robert de baudricourt captain of vacouilleurs to whom saint michael had directed her for aid bidding farewell to her beloved home her cherished mother and dear companion omette she journeyed with her uncle to vacouilleurs in her simple peasant's costume a coarse red dress and little close white cap they travelled nearly four leagues among the banks of the meuse and traversed the valley spread with verdant meadows enamelled with flowers from which the town derived its name and at the extremity of which it lay in the form of an amphitheatre they arrived in the busy streets where all was new stirring life to the young girl who had never before wandered beyond the hills that encircled her home they sought the dwelling of an hospitable wheelwright whose wife was captivated with the gentleness and beauty of the strangely commissioned maiden joan's uncle had previously obtained an interview with baudricourt giving an account of her and asking the aid she desired to which the blunt soldier replied give her a good whipping and take her back to her father 
nothing daunted by this scorn of her pretensions she succeeded in obtaining admittance to the castle and soon stood in the presence of the hardy captain speaking in a firm tone she told him she came from her lord to succour the king and that she would raise the siege of orleans and bring charles to reims to be crowned the captain struck with her appearance and astonished at her words believed her possessed with the devil and sent immediately for the cure upon entering her presence the frightened priest exhibited his stole or scarf and commanded the evil spirits to depart if they guided her she simply smiled upon him and conversed with so much honesty and unaffected simplicity that the cure himself was bewildered the news that the prophecy concerning a pucelle of the marches of lorraine who was to save the realm was about to be accomplished and that the maid had actually appeared through all vaucouliers in a commotion crowds hastened to see her and hear her words and all were equally vehement in their admiration and confident of her saintly commission several of the nobility were won over to her cause and promised to conduct her to the king for she assured them that no one in the world nor kings nor dukes nor daughter of the king of scotland could recover france but herself and that it was her lord's will she should do it urging them to hasten for she must be at orleans before mid-lent baudricourt sent messages to the king to obtain his consent to an interview with joan orleans being closely besieged the inhabitants not able to defend it much longer and charles crown being dependent on the preservation of this last stronghold he was willing to grasp any aid however supernatural if it would but serve his purpose receiving his orders for her advance she set out from vaucouliers equipped in man's attire mounted upon a fiery black charger the gift of the admiring inhabitants and armed with a sword bestowed by baudricourt at her departure a message of entreaty threats and commands came from her parents who were frantic with the thought of trusting their youngest and delicate daughter to all the horrors and exposures of war but joan still firm in her resolves begged their forgiveness and continued her journey with an escort of three knights the district that lay between vaucouliers and chinon where charles held his court was overrun with men-of-arms at both parties making the journey extremely perilous but joan fearlessly traversed it cheering her companions who regretted the undertaking and began to fear that their charge was a witch or sorceress she continued to face danger with the utmost tranquillity and insisted upon sojourning at every little town to hear mass or to repeat her prayers in the churches at fierbois she remained a long time kneeling before the altar in st catherine's cathedral in spite of the entreaties of her impatient escort after escaping an ambuscade that had been laid for her they arrived safely at chinon here in a strong castle the ruins of which still ornamented the town charles and his courtiers were assembled a rich suite of apartments was occupied by his queen mary of anjou and her ladies of honour among whom was agnes sorrel known by the appellation of fairest of the fair and lady of beauty and celebrated as much for her gaiety of temper entertaining conversation and grace of manner as for her beauty the gentle submissive queen had consented to live amicably with this beautiful woman who shared the affection of the king and had a powerful influence over him seeing the hopeless condition of orleans he would have fled to the remote province of dauphigny and abandoned his crown but for the spirited agnes and the prudent sensible queen both of whom warned him that his followers would forsake him if he betrayed his despair by, of success by flight. 
End of section 12. Recording by Aubrey Kirkup.